0: Emotions have a really bad reputation in the workplace because we never learned how to talk about them, how to manage them, navigate them. And so instead of having a small conversation to avoid miscommunication, we don't talk about it, we don't express how we're feeling and it festers for six months and then suddenly someone starts crying in a meeting or they had this angry explosion and that's what we define as emotions at work when in fact that's a signal that we were never successfully figuring out how to deal with our emotions much, much earlier.
1: If you're on social media, chances are you would have come across Liz's heartfelt, and highly relatable anecdotes in bite-sized visuals via the hugely successful Liz and Molly Instagram account. Liz Foslian is the co-author and illustrator of the national bestseller Big Feelings and the Wall Street Journal bestseller No Hard Feelings. She's also the head of content and communications at Humu a company that uses behavioral science to make work better.
2: Liz regularly leads interactive, scientifically-backed workshops about how to build resilience, help remote workers avoid burnout, and effectively harness emotions as a leader. Her work has been featured by Harvard Business Review, The New York Times, The Economist, and NPR. And in today's chat, we explore the nuanced world of navigating and embracing our emotions in the workplace. Enjoy! Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N.
1: And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional.
2: Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally.
1: Hi Liz, welcome to the Explore This podcast. We've been the biggest fan of your work, so we're so glad to finally make this call happen. Thank you so much for dialing in all the way from California this morning. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So let's dive right in. Liz, we're sure so many of our listeners would know of you as the illustrator behind the hugely successful Liz and Molly Instagram account, and of course, as the co-author of No Hard Feelings and the recently launched Big Feelings. But not many would have known that you actually started your career at an economic consulting firm. So would you share with us your journey of going from mathematical economics to now best-selling author and illustrator? Yeah,
0: yeah. So most people are surprised when they learn that I don't have a design background for full context. My parents are immigrants. They came to the U.S. from Europe, very academic, very quantitative. And when I was going to college or university, my world was I can be a banker, a lawyer or a doctor. And I didn't like blood, so no doctor. (laughs) Um, So then it was like, okay, I guess I'll maybe go for banker. So, I studied math and economics. And just to share with the audience, law firms would hire the company that I worked for to calculate the damages or to do kind of risk assessment and figure out like how much should these companies be paying each other. I started that in 2009. So, the financial crisis, at least in the US. And so, some of the cases were just like, You know, people had lost their entire pensions because Lehman Brothers defaulted on their loans. And so it was just like not heartwarming work because it was truly people who had nothing left at the end of their life. And then my job was to say, like, nobody owes you anything. This is just what happens to you. There was a lot going into that job that just made it. Basically, I really, really didn't like it. The hours were also ridiculously long. We would be waiting to hear from law firms. So sometimes like in the evening, you would get the work you needed to do, and then you'd have to stay till 1 or 2 a.m. And so it was just these really ridiculous days. I also started getting headaches. like It was just this physical manifestation of how much I didn't like this job. And I finally realized that I had to quit. I had no idea what I wanted to do next. And the nice thing about that job had been that it was a very clear career trajectory. It was, you know, analyst, associate, vice president, and then that was your life. And there's something comforting about that, I think, in some ways. And so, yeah, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I think it was 24, and so I went to Starbucks and just started working as a barista because I needed some kind of money. And at Starbucks it was the first time that I really understood or saw The power of bringing emotions into the workplace because their onboarding was so good. And they talked so much about how do you make customers feel like they belong to this brand, like they're going to have a good morning. The way they design the stores, the music changes based on the time of day because they want to create different emotional experiences. And like people spent so much time and money at Starbucks. And so for me, it was really the first time of like, wow, if you tap into your emotions instead of suppress them <laughs> pretend that they don't exist there's not only like business benefits but it also just creates this better environment and i would say that was really my first step into emotions at work into illustrations i didn't start with illustration i started with doing data visualization because that was like a creative way to use some of my more quantitative skills but the lesson i learned was just to see every experience as a learning opportunity i absolutely did not think that making coffee at Starbucks would dramatically change my life's trajectory. But I, I'm i just so grateful that I had that experience. And even that I worked as an economic consultant, because I also think it's really helpful to know what you don't want. And that also helps you make better decisions going forward.
2: Well, Liz, Janice and I can definitely resonate with knowing How the previous work experiences can help you identify what you don't want and what you want at work. And we also love how you've started exploring bringing emotions into the workplace and how we can tap into that piece instead of avoiding it. So we'll definitely dive into that a little bit more. But, you know, we also want to come back to something that Janice and I have heard you said before in a previous LinkedIn live learning session. And you said this start where you are, even when you're not fully ready. And so share with us a little bit about how this manifested in your own career and more importantly, how you silence any voices of doubts and fears if they ever arose.
0: They definitely arose. They still do. (laughs) If I'm not, I don't have the perfect answer to this. But yeah, I think, you know, especially I'll take the example of illustration. For me, I always and still sometimes do felt a little like an imposter because I didn't study art. I didn't have any formal training. So I think even now, sometimes I don't call myself an illustrator, even though I make illustrations and put them online. So I don't know what else (laughs) I expect from someone. But I think it really comes down to the way that I started was I was not that good at it. And so I just took the skills I had, which I've been making a lot of charts and Excel and PowerPoint, which are not beautiful programs, but that's what I knew. And so then I started drawing those. And so it slowly turned into more illustrative style, but it wasn't like, I need to be an amazing illustrator tomorrow. It was just, here's some skills that I have. How can I try to adapt them in a new way? And yeah, I'm curious for your perspective on this, at least in the US, I was also just bombarded with, you, know, you should discover your passion and then you should pursue that. And I think the truth is that most people have no idea what they want to do at 20 or 21 or 30. And so again, it's just like, Do something, take a job. Don't be wedded to that as your career for the rest of your life. See what you like about it, see what you don't. You are going to learn skills that you can apply later on. Again, even if full learning is, here's what a bad manager looks like. Here's what I don't like to do. That's really valuable as you look for your next job. I think too often we put pressure on ourselves to have it all figured out before we make a move. And it's actually just like start making the moves because that will help you figure it out.
2: It seems like something you also experimented with definitely had to do with career prototyping and not feeling like you had to commit immediately. But there are so many different ways of tapping into different experiences that come your way. Who knew that your experiences in Starbucks catapulted your career to be what it is today, right? So I love what you iterated about saying yes to the opportunities that come your way, leveraging the skill set that you built through those experiences. And basically, just be really open to saying yes and embracing those failures and risks as well. But you know what's really interesting to me, and, and I think people won't believe it when you say you didn't have the formal artistic background and you can't relate with being an illustrator because you know your Instagram account, Liz and Molly, has more than 400k followers. And these work that you put out are so incredibly relatable from students to authors even celebrities and it really epitomizes the saying of a picture speaks a thousand words so we're curious and I'm sure our listeners are as well to know a little bit more about your creative process we want to know where do you usually draw inspiration from and how do you translate those concepts those ideas into this very simple yet powerful illustrations
0: yeah so the simplicity definitely comes from so again Growing up in my household, we were very emotionally suppressed or repressed. Like we just didn't talk about feelings. And I was sort of socialized not to share much. And so I think that actually still shows up in the illustrations where they definitely communicate how I'm feeling if that's really sad or if it's, you know, nervous about the future. But I never share a lot of personal detail. So I think the upside is that it makes it more relatable because you don't have to see yourself precisely in the details. It's like, oh, I've had a bad night and then been worried about the next morning or I've been struggling with my career. But I definitely think some of it comes from this is a way for me to express myself without kind of opening up too much. So that still exists for me. But then in terms of where I draw inspiration, it's a combination of often what I'm feeling or what I hear from others. Sometimes someone will just say something in a meeting and I'll write it down really quickly, or I'll be on a podcast and someone will say something and it just resonates with me. And then, so I usually have, I have a notebook full of words or phrases that people have said. And then I also have a Pinterest board actually of just all kinds of visuals. So Venn diagrams, stop signs, the Mona Lisa, just things that people everywhere will probably recognize. And so what I'll do is I'll take this list of phrases and go through the list of visuals and figure out like which one is the best way to represent this idea. So it's actually pretty structured. And I think the more artistic people that I speak to, the more I realize that a lot of creatives have a lot of routines and structures in place. It's not this like loosey-goosey, you get struck by lightning and suddenly there's an idea. It's, it, it requires a lot of focus and setting time
1: aside and putting structures in place. I can see the marriage between your old life as you know <laughs> yeah. mathematical economics where you had to do a lot of pivot tables, pie charts and graphs and how that shows up in the work that you do. It's like such a great marriage of like the structured and the flowy artistic expression that culminated in the content that you produce in this and Molly. But Liz, we do want to speak to you as well to understand how we can embrace emotions at the workplace better how we can harness these emotions and tying back to what you mentioned earlier about how it's so important to tap into these emotions instead of suppressing them because there's always been a pervasive belief that emotions don't belong at the workplace we shouldn't wear our hearts on our sleeves or overemote at work because it could potentially come across as unprofessional and You know, not reading the room. But interestingly, the research that you have done actually defies this assumption. So I'm going to quote something that you wrote about in your first book, No Hard Feelings. You wrote, when we first started our first jobs, we thought professionals did not fail, fuss or feel. But we soon realized that this view is unrealistic and stand in the way of our sense of fulfillment and success. We would love to hear from you. Why is it important that we embrace our emotions at work?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So the fundamental reason is that we are emotional creatures. We evolved to have emotions and they actually contain really valuable signals. So number one, you can't stop having emotions at work. That just is not realistic. And two, if you suppress your emotions, they're going to come out in other ways or you're going to miss out on important information. So I think emotions have a really bad reputation in the workplace Because we never learned how to talk about them, how to manage them, navigate them. And so instead of having a small conversation to avoid miscommunication, we don't talk about it, we don't express how we're feeling, and it festers for six months, and then suddenly someone starts crying in a meeting, or they had this angry explosion. And that's what we define as emotions at work, when in fact, that's a signal that we were never... Successfully figuring out how to deal with our emotions much, much earlier. And then there's also the upside of if you don't bring emotions at work or not bring them, they are there, but acknowledge them. It's much harder to figure out what do you like in your career? What, what tasks or what kind of work gives you meaning? What do you want to pursue more of? And looking back at my first job as an economic consultant definitely wasn't the career for me, but I think I wouldn't have crashed and burned so hard. Had I known that you could do something like go to your manager and say, hey, this is the part of my job that I really love. Can I take on more of these responsibilities and maybe shift away from these? So I did like writing the reports, making charts, but I just never knew that you could even say that to someone because I was like, no, to be an employee, I just get the assignment, I do the assignment and I just act like everything is fine. And that actually doesn't make you a good employee. You're not innovative. You're not creative. You're not going to move forward in a direction that's sort of more naturally fitting for you. There's so so many places to go with this. There's also research that shows that came out of Google. They looked at what drives team performance. So They looked at sales teams where you could look at, were they meeting sales quotas? So there's a clear metric for performance and productivity. And they found to their surprise, which they admitted that it's not really who is on the team. So if you have the smartest people on the team, the team still doesn't do well. If they don't listen to each other, if they don't support each other, they don't share information. So who matters less than how the team interacts. And
2: Liz, I think this is especially evident in a workplace where you are often told that if you show too much emotions at work, it just shows that you are being very unprofessional. But more than that, you might actually be putting your colleagues at some sort of unease. And so maybe there also are some detriments to showing too much emotions at work. And we recall that in one of your TED Talks, you speak about the concept of selective vulnerability and how it is the key to bringing our authentic selves to work. So on one hand, we talk about we're emotional beings and it is important to not put them aside and to acknowledge them and embrace them. But at the same time, striking the balance between where you make your colleagues feel a bit uneasy. So we'd love for you to unpack this meaning of selective vulnerability and share with us, in more actionable
0: and tangible ways about how this can be put into practice? Yeah. So, everything that I'd say, it's definitely not an invitation to become a feelings fire hose where you're having a bad day and you walk into the office and say, I'm an emotional creature. I hate you all. Don't talk to me, right? That's not useful. That's not, you're not being a nice colleague there. So, there's definitely a limit to sharing emotions at work. And so, selective vulnerability applies to everyone, but especially if you are in a leadership position. So one of your jobs as a leader is to provide stability for the team, to make people feel confident in your ability to lead them through challenging times, to set clear milestones. And those are actually all things that are also key to making people feel good at work. If I don't know what I'm supposed to work on, I'm going to feel terrible because I'm just spinning my wheels without a clear goal in sight. So selective vulnerability, the Formula for that is really pairing a moment of openness with a path forward. And that moment of openness, again, you have to walk this line between sharing, which builds trust, and oversharing, which destroys it. So let's say, in the case of you just lost a really big customer, if you're a leader coming into that meeting and saying something like, This is really hard, and we have a lot to learn from this, I want to acknowledge that this wasn't great. And if you have concerns, let's talk about those now. Right. So that's kind of this middle ground. You're not ignoring it. You're not saying that everything is fine. Don't worry at all. But you're also not coming into the meeting in tears, saying, like, I couldn't sleep last night. What are we going to do? Right. Like, that's very destabilizing. Your team will get extremely anxious. So it's just acknowledging the emotions, talking about them without getting very emotional, and then shifting to this path forward. So this is a hard situation. I'm feeling it too. I just want to acknowledge that here's what I'm going to do over the next three months to make sure this doesn't happen again. Here's what I need from you. So again, you are having this emotional moment, showing that you're human, earning people's trust, and then earning it further still by saying, I've also thought about how to improve the situation. Here's our plan. Here's how we're going to move forward as a team. So there's many examples of this. I'll give one more tip, which is one of the people... I interviewed for No Hard Feelings was Kim Scott. She wrote a book called Radical Candor. She's a manager at Google for many years. And she always thought that she was a cool and collected manager until one of her reports came up to her and said, the team knows what kind of day we're going to have by your mood when you walk in the door. And she was just like, oh, okay. (laughs) I have not been this like, you know, totally collected person that I thought I was. So what she started doing is flagging her feelings and she didn't go into details. But if she had a bad morning or had a bad day, which is going to happen, she would just say, it's been a morning. I just want to flag that it has nothing to do with you. Or if she entered a meeting at 4 p.m. and had been running around all day, she'd be like, you know, I've been in back-to-back meetings. If I seem a little distracted, I'm sorry. I want to be present. It has nothing to do with you. So again, she wasn't oversharing, she wasn't crying, but she was saying like, today I'm flagging that there might be something that seems off about
1: me, but you don't need to worry. I don't want to contribute to your anxiety. These are such great actionable tips, Liz. I think in many countries, we're still doing a lot of hybrid, mostly virtual interactions. So I think in these interactions, a lot of the nuances of flagging feelings and being able to read someone else's emotions, it could sometimes get lost in translation. So I'm wondering if there are any additional tips that you could offer, especially for these interactions that happen virtually nowadays when it comes to selective vulnerability and how we can put this into action.
0: Yeah. So it's definitely harder and takes more intention. So for context, I'm in a corner of my living room. This has been my office for two and a half years. So I've also been dealing with the, you know, virtual, trying to figure out what's going on with people it requires more intentionality around your actions and then also creating space to check in with people. So in an office normally, especially if you're a leader, you can walk around and kind of get a sense of that person seems distracted or I'm in the kitchen and in my interaction, this person seemed really upset about something. I should check in with them. You just don't have those opportunities. So in team meetings, I've seen or I've heard of leaders doing like team check-ins where they'll say, we're going to start this off with a red, yellow, green green is I'm good. Yellow is I'm feeling a little at capacity. It's a stressful week. And red is there's something really big going on I need to share with the team. So it's creating the space and giving people really simple shared language. So it's easy for them to flag what's going on in one-on-ones, You know, starting with like, how are you? What can I do to support you? Is anything unclear? Having very specific questions so that people, again, can feel safer sharing in those situations. One thing that comes up a lot in a virtual setting is we tend to rely on digital communication more. So we're sending more messages and emails, and that's an area where it is so easy to completely misread someone's emotions. And so I always advise people do something called an emotional proofread. So this is, you take two seconds before you hit send, and you just think about, how would I feel if I got this message? Does it have all the information? Does it communicate my emotional state? Like, is it actually going to land in the way that I want it to? And so for example, I got an email from my boss. This was many years ago, but it came at like a Thursday towards the end of the day. And it just said, like, we need to talk. Can you find time with me tomorrow? That is a terrifying email to receive. I did not sleep on Thursday. Goosebumps. I I know. It's like people get fired on Fridays. Like, I'm out. This is it for me. And then it was just, you know, a question about a memo I had written. That's an emotional proofread. It's just take the time to say like, I have a quick question about the memo. You know, let's just find 15 minutes to go over it tomorrow. I would have slept. I would have slept Thursday night. And so again, don't cause unnecessary anxiety. And one thing too that I've done if if I'm sending a really important email is I'll actually send it to myself first. So that I have that quick experience of opening it, reading through it. I usually find a typo. So again, if this is a high stakes email, I think it's a nice practice just to go through that experience. And then usually you'll end up editing a sentence or two.
1: That's an amazing tip Liz. I've never actually thought of that as a way to read it from a third person's perspective and maybe after having read through it you might omit certain things which you would have regretted after sending it out. So I think that's a very actionable <laughs> yeah. tip to keep those emotions and you know feelings in check. So I think we're going to deep dive a bit further down the emotions pathway and talk about your newest book Big Feelings. We're really excited to talk about this because the seven big feelings that you highlight in this book anger, uncertainty, burnout, despair, comparison, regret, and perfectionism, these are feelings that I can imagine would resonate so deeply with all of our audience, right? Very relatable and things that we've definitely experienced, especially in the past two years in in this whole time of uncertainty and, and volatility. So just to understand that and to hear from you a bit more about this book, how did you both essentially land on these specific seven feelings from the book? And from these seven big feelings, which one did people find the most challenging to confront?
0: Yeah, great question. So Molly, my co-author and I, we published No Hard Feelings in February of 2019. And then later that year, just went through really hard experiences in our personal lives. So I lost someone to cancer and Molly was dealing with chronic pain issues And so kind of ironically, we were both suddenly struggling with really hard feelings where the simple advice of like exercise, you know, talk to a friend, it just wasn't really working anymore. And that was the the motivation for writing the next book, Big Feelings. And so we started with a list of, I think, 10 or 12 emotions that we had been feeling and that we also couldn't really find great resources on. So dealing with uncertainty Despair, just when you feel it's just hard to do anything on a certain day. So we thought there was opportunity to write about those. And then we actually surveyed about 1,500 people from all around the world, all different backgrounds, ages, races, to get an understanding of what would be broadly useful to people, not just us. And what was interesting about that is people will point out sometimes they'll be like, perfectionism is not an emotion. Comparison is not an emotion, which is true. But what we found is that when we asked people about envy which is usually the emotion that comparison evokes or brings up people had some response but when we then said comparison we got so many responses so it's interesting too and i think points to the fact that these sort of bigger emotions that are often described as bad people i think sometimes like suppress them so much that they only can associate with the behavior and not even with the emotion that comes up because of that behavior So, comparison, like everyone's like, yes, I've looked at LinkedIn and then felt immediately bad about myself. Or I've looked at Facebook and seen someone's like beautiful vacation and then, you know, felt like I should be going on a vacation. And so they're feeling envy or they're feeling despair, but they weren't able to name those emotions as well. So the seven emotions definitely came from a lot of research, our own experiences. But the way that we talked about them was we wanted to meet people where they were. We thought that was a better starting place and then kind of take them on this journey of, here's the emotions you're feeling because of this behavior.
1: So if we were to, let's say, you know, dive into the comparison feeling, and I think what you said was just spot on, right? Like LinkedIn, it's a great platform. I love LinkedIn, but I have to admit, you know, going through an uncertain career stage at one point, it seemed like at one point, every week someone was getting promoted or getting a new fancy job. And After a while, it became such a struggle, right, to go on LinkedIn and genuinely be in like a celebratory mood, even though I am happy for those who have found greener pastures. But comparison is such a real and challenging feeling that I think a lot of us would grapple with, especially in a time of, you know, hyper social awareness and everyone's just always kind of hyper connected in every way. How would you recommend that we navigate this feeling of comparison?
0: Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, to to go in on LinkedIn. Actually, I think LinkedIn's gotten better over the past year with the pandemic. I think people are sharing more things that aren't going well for them, so it's been cool to see that shift a little bit. But you know, still there's a lot of promotions. So specific things with comparison. The first is that just keeping in mind that you're only seeing someone's highlight reel, so you're really comparing your insides to someone else's outsides. So you know all of your insecurities, all of your negative self narrative. And then the only thing you know about this other person in that moment is that they got a promotion. That doesn't mean that they're happy that their life is perfect. It means they got a promotion. And so often we just, again, think like, oh, we see this one event and then extrapolate. They're so happy. They have everything figured out. Usually not true. The second is that research shows that we actually don't compare ourselves enough. So researchers ask people, do you think you're a good runner? And generally, almost everyone said, not really. And that was because researchers found out they were comparing themselves to the best runner they knew. But when researchers said, why don't you write down like 10 of your friends and then think about how good they are at running? How good of a runner are you? And people said like, oh, I'm not that bad. I'm just like an average runner. (laughs) And so I think often we also, when we think about our career, for example, like if you're a budding lawyer, you're usually comparing yourself Yes, to your peers, but really you're comparing yourself to like a Supreme Court justice or a partner at a law firm. And it's like you are just starting out. This is not a fair comparison. So you don't need to feel bad because you don't have the job that someone who has been in the business for 30 more years than you has. And then the last thing is when we ignore the emotions that come up from comparison, we also miss out on useful signals. So another great story from someone we interviewed, a lawyer. So she was a lawyer, she graduated, she had a career in law, and then she got her law school's alumni book, which had like little blurbs about different people's careers. And she noticed that when she read what other lawyers were doing, it was interesting, but no big emotional response. And then one of her classmates she saw had written the book, and she said she felt sick with envy. Like, she just it was so jealous that she had to put this alumni magazine down. And that for her was an indication that maybe she wanted to do some more writing on the side or that this was actually something that she had always really wanted, but had never pursued. So she started taking writing classes and then eventually wrote The Happiness Project and The Four Tendencies. And so the lawyer is Gretchen Rubin, who's like a best-selling author around the world. And I, I just love that because it's such a good example of she would not have started this very successful writing career for herself had she not had this like pretty bad moment of literally having her stomach feel sick because she was so jealous of someone else's life.
2: Such apt examples, I have to say, you pointed out, number one, pointing to Gretchen Rubin initially being lawyers like Janice and myself and then later pivoting to, you know, writing The Happiness Project. And we are so familiar as well with the Four Tendencies quiz. We also want to speak a little bit more into two other emotions that resonate so much with Janice and I, especially during this period of volatility for the past two and a half years that we've all been experiencing on uncertainty and burnout. So could you dive a little bit more into these two top emotions and we'd love to hear more on actionable ways in which we can navigate these two emotions which can be quite
0: uncomfortable, especially in the workplace. So I'll start with burnout. We tend to think that we'll just know when we're burnt out. But in the earlier stages, burnout affects our self-awareness. So you actually might feel like a superwoman running from one thing to another. I have my social life. I have my work. I'm doing everything in the middle of a pandemic. I'm amazing. And you don't realize that you're actually running yourself into the ground. And so it's really important to look out for early warning signs, like you're cutting out things you know are good for you. So like exercise, seeing friends, you keep pushing those off because you just have so much to do. The thought of having a cold and like being forced to lie on the couch for a day actually sounds like a relief because it's an excuse to just take a break. So that's a common one that came up. So I think it's first of all, just really important to check in with yourself on a daily basis or like what I do also I'll on Sunday nights. I'll actually look at my calendar for the week and I'll figure out, oh, Wednesday I'm in back-to-back meetings. Is there a meeting that I could turn into a phone call? Is there a meeting that I could push out for a week? Turn into an email to make my Wednesday not quite so draining. So again, like thinking about it as a state of action and a daily practice as opposed to this big thing that takes months to overcome. That's usually it's, you know, you let it go on for too long. And then I think it's also just really crucial to figure out what's driving your burnout. So burnout is is used for so many different emotions nowadays, but there's, according to the clinical definition, three main components. So the first is overextension. You just have too much to do. And so if that's the case, like, can you reprioritize? Is there anything you can delegate to someone else? It could just be like, I don't need to make dinner for myself tonight. I'm just going to order it. Like that's the small thing I'm going to do to like take that out of off my to-do list. The second is feeling disengaged. So you could have a really good work-life balance. But if you feel disconnected from everyone, you feel isolated, this is a big one, especially if you're all virtual. Maybe you actually just like need to reach out to someone, schedule a virtual lunch, just reconnect with people. And the third is feeling ineffective. So if you feel like you're putting in all this effort and it's not getting you anywhere, that's also going to make you feel really bad. So thinking through like, can I set three big goals for myself this month and make sure that I'm always moving towards those and not just doing a bunch of like emails that feel good in the moment, but don't actually advance my career or that won't feel meaningful a month from now. And it comes down to kind of what is daily practice or what are the small things I can do? to help myself feel better, give myself breaks, and then really understanding what is it that's causing me to feel so exhausted and not excited about my day. And I'll give one final tip here, which is also to embrace this concept of garbage time. So we often, when we think about productivity or our career, we think about doing things. That's also what we get rewarded for, right? Like on LinkedIn, people are gonna celebrate your promotion. They're probably not going to celebrate you like sitting on the couch for six hours watching Netflix, even though that might be like really important to making you feel good. Brene Brown, who's also a best-selling author, writes a lot about emotions and vulnerability that she shared on her podcast. She's working on her latest book and she asked her husband to take their kids away for the weekend so she could have some focus time to write. And so he gets all the kids in the car, goes to their in-laws, It's this big production. She has the house to herself. He comes home on Sunday night and he says, You know, how much of your book did you write? And she has to admit, Nothing. She says, I just watched 46 episodes of Law and Order. And they get in this huge fight because he's like, What the heck? (laughs) Like, I didn't leave the house so that you could binge watch TV. And she said, though, in the following days, like, the chapters just flowed out of her. It was so easy to write them. And so she actually needed to decompress to be able to be productive. It's easy to say and hard to believe, but really understanding. So I think like really trying to internalize
1: that is important. really love that, you know, that cheeky actionable tip on having garbage time. Just out of pure (laughs) curiosity, what do you do during your garbage time?
0: I will read... I so I I'm an introvert. So I also I've actually dedicated one weekend day where I make no plans. So and my friends all know this. And I think it's it's nice that my friends know about it because then it doesn't feel as personal. It's just like, oh, this is Liv's doing her weird garbage day thing. <laughs> so it's like a Saturday, nothing on the agenda. I just get to wake up and whatever I feel like doing. And that sometimes is like reading a magazine. Sometimes it's watching TV. Sometimes it's like answering some emails. Like it just feels nice to do that. I don't put pressure on myself. But it's really about just kind of going where the day takes me. And that feels, I think that's such a luxury in the modern world.
2: It feels so liberating, but also kind of half scary. And a funny story which happened to me literally last weekend was when I said, Oh my goodness, I have no plans on a Saturday. What do I do? And a friend told me, (laughs) Sarah. Just chill. Like, do you know what that yeah. means? I'm like, but but what do I do when I chill? And I'm like, oh my yeah. god! Like, that it made me realize what you said. You know, Liz, I have to embrace having nothing on the agenda, and maybe that is exactly what we need to recharge ourselves and utilizing that garbage time so that we can be more effective and energized for the rest of the week.
0: Yeah, I've seen this like meme on social media that really resonates with me, and it's very similar to your story, which is like. This woman saying, I would I'd love to go with the flow. What time does the flow start? Yeah, and I was just talking about it. And she was like, Sarah, this is so you. good. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the moment I thought of was <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, that was so hilarious. Because Sarah has this thing about like scheduling everything. And the moment I saw that meme, I thought of her. Immediately. <laughs> that, that was so good. Oh Great God. reminder. We should make garbage time or garbage hour a thing.
2: Or like schedule in garbage time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Exactly. (laughs) Starts at 2 p.m. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, actually, Liz, you know, one other thing that we absolutely had to ask you is actually a topic you also shared about in your book, which is on self identity and self worth. And I think that is a topic that plays on a lot of our, our target audience's mind. We are all mostly young working professionals. And more often than not, and unfortunately, a lot of our self worth is actually derived from our professional identity. Do you think it's possible to detach your self-worth from what you do at work? And if so, how can we overcome this tendency, which actually has been ingrained and entrenched in the way we operate? First of all, it's a really wonderful thing to do something
0: you love and to take pride in that and to take pleasure in that. So, That's not what I'm talking about when I say detach your worth from your work. It's when it becomes the only source of self-confidence for yourself. When it becomes like, before Liz, I am a lawyer or I am a consultant. That's, that's when it's like, oof, like this, you're not going to have this job forever. One example is you're at one point, you know, if you live long enough, which fingers crossed, you'll retire and then what? So this is not sort of your permanent thing that you're doing. So I think it's actually really important to. Just invest in other parts of your life and step away from your work. That's what I found most effective. And I had this a while when I was really embedded in my job. I had this experience where I would take a week of vacation or four days. And the first day I would be kind of depressed because it's again, that's like, who am I? Like, what am I doing? I'm not getting emails. My boss isn't giving me praise or giving me assignments. I don't have a team. What is my personal worth? Like, what is my meaning without this sort of sense of just all these little pings that make me feel good? But then, you know, by day three, it's like, oh, well, I have friends and I have my husband, my family and all these other parts of my life that give me a lot of meaning. So I think one is just taking the vacation, actually stepping away from your job. And then two, this is like very nerdy and people make fun of me for this, but I think it's just important to have like a diverse portfolio of sources of meaning of like, yes, your job can be one of them. But then like, who are you outside of that? What do you value? Is there like a hobby that you love? Is there, you know, running can give you a lot of meaning or be something you enjoy spending time with your loved ones, spending time with a pet, spending time with yourself, whatever it is. You just don't want it to be that your work is your only source of validation because that's when you just get overinvested in it. And that's actually also when your performance goes down because you start to get so frantic of like, I need this. I need to do well at this as opposed to, I want to do well at this. I'm going to try, but if things don't go
1: perfectly, that's fine too because I have all these other things going on in my life. That's actually really, really spot on. And I think Personally, for Sarah and myself, that really struck a chord for us for sure. Because I think at one point when we were deciding whether to, you know, leave law, stay in law, I think when you spend so much time invested in a particular education and think about this is the career path that I'm going to, you know, spend the rest of my life in. And inadvertently, that investment of time inevitably leads to being where a lot of your validation that all comes from that. So being able to decouple yourself from the job or career title that you're in, investing in other parts of your life, that will certainly be able to give our lives a fuller, richer sense. So we actually wanted to hear from you the worst piece of advice that you've ever received or the best advice that you find yourself constantly going back to.
0: Worst advice? I was never explicit. I just feel like, I just felt it so strongly. It was this like, you need to have everything figured out right away. And now I'm in my mid-30s and I love my career. I still don't think I have everything figured out. I don't think anyone ever really does. So I would say that's pretty bad advice. And then the best advice I've ever gotten was actually after I quit this economic consulting job and I was teaching myself data visualization. I was working at Starbucks. I was just kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And some days I just feel really depressed because I was like, I'm not sitting in an office under fluorescent lights wearing a Banana Republic suit. Who am I? Like, what am I doing with my life? And my friend at the time, she said to me, the worst thing you can do is like have the courage to craft a life that is personally meaningful to you, but continue comparing it to this very rigid definition of success. So you had the courage to leave economic consulting. You're brave enough to take this very scary step of figuring something else out for yourself. Don't keep looking back. You know, your worth is not tied up in sitting in an office at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. (laughs) That's ridiculous. And so having her explicitly name that, it just helped me be like, okay, I need to really distance myself from this idea that I had for so many years of what success looked like and accept that it's just going to look different for me.
2: Incredible words of advice from your very wise friends, Liz. And I'm so glad we are wrapping up with that because it also reminds us about how we can redefine what success means to us. Granted, we also recognize that it is a privilege that we can do so. And more importantly, it just means that there's something that we can always better ourselves, improve, and there is something to work towards. I mean, what would life be if we've got everything figured out and there was nothing else that we could improve on? I think that would just make life completely boring as well.
0: Yeah, I agree.
2: So on that note, Liz, would love to ask you a question that we ask all our guests at the end of every episode. And that question for you is, what's the one thing that you recently
0: explored that surprised you? Oh, good question. I guess cooking. (laughs) I'm not really big into cooking. And my husband is an amazing cook. And so he does most of it. And so it was this thing where I just like recently decided I'm going to try to make this recipe. And yeah, this sounds so lame, but it was like shocking that I actually made a meal that tasted (laughs) good. It was like, oh, I can do this. I can do this. I just never. But yeah, I think it's like it was this very fixed identity I would placed on myself if I'm going to take my boring little story and pull out a life lesson (laughs) yeah just like try something new and you might be surprised especially when you're a beginner it's easy to make a lot of you know big steps so cooking maybe I'll keep doing it
2: (laughs) yes exactly but Liz on that note we're curious to know and of course we've mentioned this before but share with us where else can our audience find you
0: on Instagram at Liz and Molly, M-O-L-L-I-E, LizandMolly.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, all that. And then the books are No Hard Feelings and Big Feelings.
1: Awesome. And Liz, as we're officially wrapping up now, we just want to give you know a recap to this very, very insightful conversation that we have had today on learning to better harness our emotions Not just in the workplace, but in life in general. We learned today on the importance of tapping into our emotions instead of suppressing them. And you gave us some tools on how we can channel our selective vulnerability, which is to acknowledge emotions and how we can shift the path forward. To also remind ourselves to not compare ourselves with someone's highlight reel. And also love the tip about the joy of scheduling in garbage time. And last but not least, you also talked about how work shouldn't be our only source of validation, but to also remind ourselves to invest in other parts of our life that give us meaning. So on that note, thank you so much, Liz. We had a blast chatting with you and we're excited for our audience to to hear this episode.
2: And we'll see you soon again on Liz and Molly. We know we'll see more. Oh, cool. (laughs) Yeah, This was so fun. Thanks again for having me. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us.